Join me in prayer, if you would, please. Lord, we come before you once again, just submitting ourselves, Lord, to listen and hear from you. We pray, Lord, that we would receive your word, and that, Lord, it would not merely be an academic exercise, but, Lord, you would use your word in the power of your Holy Spirit to transform us. As we recognize that these are pilgrim days for us, Lord. We are walking upon this earth, Lord, until we reach the glory that you have prepared for us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use your word to cause us to persevere, to endure, to uh, turn our hearts towards you, to say with every fiber of our being that Christ means more to us than anything else. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, many of you probably have heard this story. Martin Luther had been summoned to Worms in order to answer to the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, for his writings against the sales of indulgences. That circumstances of this trial reached all the way back to when Luther had posted his 95 theses, which sparked a debate within his church and culminated in him getting excommunicated. Luther strongly disavowed the practice because it obliterated the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And the monk from Wittenberg had an advocate. Frederick the Wise was his protector. He was over the region of Saxony, Germany. And the Pope ordered Luther to Rome to answer for his actions, but Frederick the Wise said, no, he is a German monk. He is going to be tried on German soil. So the Diet was convened, which was an imperial council, It was scheduled to be held at Worms that following spring, and this diet was to conduct both political and church business, but on the agenda were the charges against Luther. Luther arrived in Worms on April 16th, and he was to appear before his superiors the next day. The diet was a a council composed of the most powerful political dignitaries of the day. Some 80 princes, and a hundred counts and various ambassadors from other countries, and of course, the emperor himself. The following day on April 17th, Luther thought he would be engaging in just a little bit of debate. Instead, when he got there, he was asked only two questions. Before him was a table with all of his books spread out, and they asked, are these your books? Luther said, yes. Then the second question was, will you recant? This question stopped Luther in his tracks because if he recanted, he would be forfeiting all of his great theology and betraying God. However, if he did not recant, he was going to be condemned and most likely executed as a heretic. So Luther tried to start a debate, but it did not work because they kept pressing him with that same question over and over again, will you recant, will you recant, will you recant? Luther asked for an additional 24 hours to consider his options. And when April 18th arrived, Luther entered before the council, same place, same people. The Emperor Charles V was sitting there on his throne, and all of the German princes and papal legates and archbishops were there too. And there was Luther, alone in his simple monk's tunic. And again, they asked him, are these your books? Yes, he said. Will you recant? Luther responded, do you want a plain answer without horns? In other words, do you want an answer without debate? Then he said these words, my conscience is captive to the word of God. 
To go against conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. And for that statement, Luther was condemned as a heretic. It was a burn-the-ships type moment. There was no turning back. The Reformation in Germany would go forward based upon the Bible, or it would fail. And every Christian in this room has benefited from Martin Luther's stand upon the Holy Scriptures on that day. Now, let me ask you then, which was the greater moment? Was it in 1505 when Luther was caught in a lightning storm And he promised God that if he would spare him, then he would change his career from being a lawyer to being an Augustinian monk where he would have regular access to study the scriptures each and every day. Or was the most important moment when he nailed his public notice to debate the sale of indulgences on the Wittenberg church door back on October 31st, 1517? Or was it in 1519 when Luther was studying the book of Romans and he finally arrived at a proper understanding of saving faith? Or was it in this moment in 1521 when he delivered his famous Here I Stand speech? Or perhaps the most important moment might be in 1522 when he was on the run as a fugitive and he translated the scriptures or the New Testament into the German language so the common people could read the scriptures and decide the truth for themselves. Which of those moments was the most important? Perhaps you might agree with me and say all of them. When we look at the great reformer's life, it illustrates the principle that we're going to discover in Matthew chapter 16. If you would, please turn back there with me. Again, this is found on page 822 of your pew Bible. The call to discipleship is rarely a single moment, but it is a series of events of trusting and obeying God, a process in which God is slowly stripping us of our sinful desires and transforming us into the image of Christ as we were originally designed. This morning, to give us an understanding of this concept, I want to approach our text here under five headings. First, we need to see these verses, of verses 24 through 28, contextually, in view of what the entire chapter says. Second, we need to understand Jesus' invitation to discipleship. Who is it for? Third, and I want to spend a little time here, we need to understand the process of discipleship. Fourth, we need to consider the consequences and the rewards of discipleship. And last, we need to consider whether or not we ourselves have a proper comprehension of what Jesus is asking his followers that live here in the 21st century. So let's begin by placing our verses here in context within chapter 16. In verses 1 through 12, we have a stark contrast of those who are seeking to relate to God within their own understanding. Perhaps we might say they are engaging God on their own terms, not on his. The Pharisees were trying to justify themselves before God based upon their legalistic behavior. As long as they were more righteous than others, then they assumed that they had right standing before an infinitely holy and just God. The Sadducees approached life much more pragmatically. They told themselves, well, as long as I'm being blessed materially in this world, then obviously God is pleased with me. Therefore, it benefits me to create an environment where I receive this personal blessing. The goal was to live for this temporal world. We might say that both of these groups viewed discipleship to God within their own vision. They defined how they would follow God, not God telling them how he wished to be worshipped and obeyed, but each party determining how in their own eyes. 
Just like we read in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. They provide a clear contrast to what Jesus will demand from those that follow him. And then we have this magnificent example of the disciple Simon Peter. In verses 13 through 20, Peter boldly proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus promises a glorious future for Peter as he will be a stone that the Lord will use to build his church. But then triumph turns to humiliation in verses 21 through 23. Jesus reveals to his followers the grand plan of his father. As the Messiah, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer under the Sanhedrin and the chief priests, and that eventually he must be put to death. But he will also be raised in three days' time. And this statement greatly offends Peter's sensibilities. In his thinking, that's now how Jesus is supposed to sit on his throne. No, no, no. Instead of that way, they will start a movement, a great following, a political party that would put Jesus in authority. Jesus will not die for it. No, he must continue to live, and they will take it by force. Jesus must accomplish his mission Peter's way. And Jesus rebukes Simon, telling him he is acting as an agent of Satan, his great adversary. For Peter is viewing Jesus' mission in a fleshly way, a worldly way, in the way of the things of man. He does not have his mind set on the things of God. And that, that is precisely the problem or the inhibitor to discipleship, isn't it? The things of man versus the things of God. Let me ask you, how often are your thoughts immersed in the things of God as opposed to the things of man? How much thought do you give God as you go about your daily activities? For example, in your conversations with your friends, maybe with your spouse or your children yesterday, how much of it was led by a conscious effort to have God direct your words? If he did then those conversations should have been edifying to one another. Or maybe in the way that you perceive the world, how much of your thinking is shaped by the Bible rather than by podcasts, the the movies you watch, political pundits, TV shows you watch, websites, and, and music? Lately, I've been amazed at how many Christians consider sermons by their favorite preachers as equivalent, if not superior, to the Word of God. That is a dangerous practice. For example, as much as I admire the writings and the insights of Martin Luther, he was a deeply flawed man in other areas of his life. His understanding of the Lord's Supper and his treatment of the Jews being two significant ones. He was a sinner saved by grace like us. It's easy to turn those popular preachers and even your own pastor into an idol. But of course, we don't have that problem here, do we? It reminds us that even among those of us that have committed our souls to Jesus, God is not done with us. He is still working inside of us to remove sinful thinking and to grow us into the image of his son. Discipleship is a process. Peter's example in that moment when he had the audacity to rebuke Jesus proves this. He just confessed the identity of the Lord Jesus, and the very next moment, he completely misunderstands and seeks to undermine the Messiah's mission. And still, despite such a great failure, in his great mercy, Jesus is not done with him yet. But Peter should have known better. He should have remembered from earlier that Jesus told him that there would be suffering back in Matthew chapter 10. 
Let me remember, uh, remind you of these words here. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In this moment, Jesus issues the challenge again to all who would follow after him. In verse 24 here, immediately after his rebuke to Jesus, Jesus, or rebuke to Peter, Jesus turns to all of his disciples here to remind them once again. And I think these next words are for all of his followers, Peter included. He begins with the invitation, and in my mind's eye, I can almost see him raising his voice so that everyone can hear him, if anyone would come after me. Three data points here I have you note. He says, anyone. This is literally any single person, not just a singled-out disciple like Peter, but anyone within his hearing. Not just Jews, not just people living in the first century. It includes us today as well. Any of us that has such a desire to seek Jesus. Second, the verb here, though translated in the ESV as come after, is literally desires to come to me desires to come to me. The New King James and the New American Standard versions of the Bible capture this. The verb is in the present active tense, meaning this is a constant process. You have to keep going after Jesus continuously. It's a nonstop event, not just a one-time decision. Luke will add the word daily in his account. He's not attempting to change Jesus' words. He's merely clarifying the understanding of what the disciples understood Jesus to say. This coming after him must be a daily process. And that is what the verb implies. You are going hard after Jesus. That is what you are pursuing. You want, you desire Christ. And third, the English translates the verse well here. The pronoun is in the singular, meaning this must be a personal choice of the individual. No one else can decide this for you. It must be your personal choice to follow. You can't merely say, I'm a follower of Jesus because you were born in a Christian home or your peers follow Jesus. It is a personal decision. It is Jesus and conformity to him as your master that you want. You desire that. Jesus says, if that is what you want, then you must do these three actions. You must A, deny self, B, take up your cross, and C, follow him. When Jesus says you must deny self, he is telling his disciples, you must give up carnal, fleshly thinking, the setting of the mind on the things of man, as Peter was doing back in verse 23. Now, this isn't saying that we give up rational thinking, but it is saying that God must transcend our minds beyond thinking humanly. The Puritans called this worldly or this fleshly rationale carnal thinking. Why must we give up human carnal thinking? Well, the Puritan uh, John Flavel helps us here as he provides five reasons why. First, Not submitting our mind to the things of God causes our carnal thinking to quarrel with the promises of God, and it shakes our confidence in them. We forget that God can do all things in Christ Jesus, so our flesh wars with our spirit, saying that God's promises are not likely to happen. Second, carnal thinking limits God's powers and sets boundaries to his powers as though his hands are tied to work through our suffering. When we are in pain, we find it hard to believe that in that moment, God could be doing something greater. 
Third, it draws desperate conclusions from providential appearances. It draws desperate conclusions from providential appearances. Peter did that in verse 22. Remember, he says, far be it for you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. How many times have we told ourselves, well, they'll never change, or I'll never change, or God will never intervene? That happens when we set our mind on the things of man. Fourth, carnal thinking sets us upon sinful courses and attempts to save ourselves from danger. It sets us on sinful courses and attempts to save ourselves from dangers. It sets our own security above the glory of God. For example, are we not glad that Joseph entered prison rather than giving into the proposition of Potiphar's wife? Aren't we glad that David acted honorably and lived as a fugitive rather than murder Saul in the caves of Adullam and take the throne for himself? Aren't we glad that in order to prove the truth of God's words to Judah, that the prophet Jeremiah entered into captivity so that the promise to write the law upon our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit would be proven true as well? Aren't we glad that Peter just offered Jesus another way to rule and Jesus did not take it, but rather endured the agony of the cross to reconcile sinners to a, a holy God? Carnal thinking makes us want to take the easy way out every time. Fifth, Carnal thinking divides our thoughts and it flows into our hearts. It corrupts our hearts and a divided heart causes us to choose the sinful world that is passing away rather than the eternal glory of God. We set our minds on the things of man rather than the things of God. And this is what it means to deny self that we choose God over our flesh. We no longer consider our concerns above the Lord's. He tells us in doing so that we must actively take up our crosses. Every person in the first century would have understood what Jesus was demanding in that moment. They would have seen a Roman execution or at least witnessed a criminal carrying his cross in the streets on his way to be executed. It meant a willingness to surrender one's life. Like deny self, this is an imperative, a command. The disciple willingly chooses the cross. He or she picks it up. It's not merely to have the cross placed upon them. It means you take it up willingly. And here's why. Why do you deny self? Why do you take up your cross? In order to follow Jesus. It is because that is what he requires. That may seem harsh. That may seem too great a commitment, but we should note that Jesus makes this challenge right after he tells his disciples that this is what he was going to do. He knows the plot already. He will obey the Father, obedience that will lead to death on the cross. He will willingly enter it. He will have his own creation spit on him mock him, beat him to a bloody pulp so severely that it would be hard to recognize his face. He will have his hands and his feet nailed upon a cross of wood. And as he hangs, he will receive the wrath of his father for every single sin of the elect. Justice will be satisfied. Every single sin, even those that we committed this morning. All of them. And yet, not only does he know the plot, he also knows the end of the story. He will be raised from the grave to eternal glory. 
He will be the first fruits of those that are raised from the dead. Have you thought about that? He will be the reason that you can physically wrap your arms around your loved ones in heaven. You will have physical lips with which to kiss them. Because his body is raised, he will be the reason you're going to have mouths and vocal cords to sing praise to the glory of God the Father. We will not be spirits alone, We're not apparitions or ghosts, but real, living, breathing, glorious bodies without sin. All because Jesus denied himself, took up his cross, and obeyed the will of his Father. He sets the example for us. And there are both glorious rewards of following him and severe eternal consequences of renouncing Jesus. He begins in verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We must remember that this current state of affairs on the earth is fleeting. It is only temporary. This corrupt, sinful world will be radically transformed. The things of old will pass away. Only the new are going to remain. There will be no more need for debates about vaccines or masks. There's not even going to be a need for health care in general. It means one day your stock portfolio will disappear. There'll be no more 401k or social securities or fears about being able to make it. So what happens to the person that lives for the things of man, things that are passing away? Well, if that's what your life is based upon, you will lose it because they will no longer exist. But if you give up this present life for Jesus' sake, you will actually find real life, life that cannot be taken away. So in light of an eternal perspective, Jesus here appeals to reason. Verse 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You want to live for dust? Because here's the promised future, verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus has already spoke about this event three times in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24, he graciously warns his fellow Jews of the consequences if they refuse to repent. In chapter 13, he explains the parable of the weeds. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. And he stated again in that same chapter when he explained the parable of the net. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The consequences of not following Jesus are dire. Fleeting trinkets on this earth that will burn away with eternal wrath in eternity versus a surrendering of those fleeting treasures only to trade them for eternal rewards and a glorious resurrected body that can never be corrupted in heaven. Now next week, I will address verse 28 here, Lord willing, about those who see the coming of the Son of Man in the kingdom before they die. But I want to pause here and carefully consider what we understand that Jesus is calling us to. I run into so many people that have a misunderstanding of discipleship. They think that because their emotions were stirred by a particular preacher in a particular moment, 
and they raise their hand when no one else was looking, that they are a disciple of Jesus. Or perhaps they attended the funeral of a loved one and they took a moment to consider their eternal destination and they repeated a prayer after the preacher and that somehow that mantra of that prayer saved their soul, but yet they can still just live any old way they want to. But Jesus does not give us such options. He says, if you come after me, it must be continuously. It's not a one-time event. It is a daily activity of denying the self, taking up our cross, and following him. Now, this is not to say that we don't have moments of ignorance about the things of God or setbacks as we're counting the costs. And some days, the things of man appear more important than the things of God. But it is a daily battle within the desire of our hearts to conform to desires of God. It's a war in which the Lord Jesus must be elevated above the self. Now consider what we just heard and, and comprehend these truths. The, the way of discipleship, folks, is not easy. It's not easy. It's hard. It's a struggle. And brothers and sisters, if you are struggling this day, be encouraged. The fact that you wrestle to submit is a sign of the Holy Spirit's work in your heart. But only if your struggle is choosing to pursue Christ rather than pursue sin. Some days it will feel easy, but most, it will be difficult. And the deeper we look inside, the more we will discover these stubborn affections for the things of man. But also be encouraged in another way. We just saw that Peter failed his test in verses 21 through 23, despite being the first to confess Jesus' true identity. And yet the power to keep Peter saved and as a disciple did not reside within himself. It is in the finished work of Jesus. The grace of Jesus is enough to cover every sin, especially as he is in the process of sanctifying us. What you will discover as you deny self and take up crosses to bear, you will learn that you have moments of triumphs and moments of failure. And then you should tell yourself in those moments, I failed to meet your demands, Lord. What shall I do? I'm struggling with this. You do not always at that moment, you don't have to be perfect. What you do is you take your cross to the Lord Jesus' cross where the victory was obtained on our behalf. And you will discover that there is still grace upon grace to cover you. It's a beautiful by faith, you apply the gospel once more and say, even here, Lord, your grace covers my stubborn affections for this world. Not in my power, but in yours, Lord, so that I may, re may receive you and also know that you receive all the glory in this moment. One more consideration regarding the denying of self. Taking up our crosses and following him, we need to think of the testimony we present to the world when we do this. When we are willing to surrender our deepest affections to follow Jesus, we are showing the world that there is nothing greater than Jesus. We will stand alongside the saints of the past who gave their all for the glory of Christ. We will sing with Job, you give and you take away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. We will sing with Jeremiah, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. We will sing alongside the reformers like Luther, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. 
Perhaps we'll even be like the Oxford martyrs, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, when under Bloody Mary's reign to return Britain back to Catholicism. As they were led to the pyre, Latimer encouraged his friends with these words, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. But their Savior was worthy of the sacrifice. Each and every one of them. Now these are all grand examples of those who denied self, took up their crosses, and surrendered life and limb for the glory of Jesus. But do not discount the everyday moments of denying self. Like when you install the internet filter on your phone and computer to shut out the pornography because Jesus means more. Or the day when you speak a harsh word to your spouse or to your child and you humbly return to your family member and you humble yourself and you say, my pride's not what's important here. I'm sorry. I have sinned against you. Or when you're with a school friend and you really want their esteem and their admiration and you choose not to participate in a sinful activity and you choose Christ instead in that moment. Or when you have a chronic illness or you're suffering a grieving loss and you're crying out, how long, O oh Lord, how long? And you live each and every day, each moment by faith just to get through it. Each and every denial of self, each and every embrace of the cross proclaims to a fallen world, I choose Christ, and he is worthy of all glory. Let's pray. Lord, you, you issue hard challenges to us, Lord. Even in this past week, Lord, just being confronted by things personal and things outside of me. There are times I just want to throw up my hands and I want to say, oh, this is uncomfortable. I don't want to deal with this anymore. But Lord, it is my cross to bear. And Lord, I know that each and every one of my brothers and sisters are right now having to be put in the situation of denying their self over a particular issue to surrender their lives and just say, I'm following you no matter what. I pray, Lord, that you would allow them to see the beautiful glory of Jesus Christ, to remember the example of their Savior in that moment, and that, Lord, they know that while the struggle is real, you will provide the grace that is sufficient for them to endure and for them to follow the Lord Jesus I pray that we would have such a vision of Jesus and all of his glory, of our resurrected bodies when we give glory and honor and sing praises to you and to him, and that, Lord, in the midst of that, it would strengthen us and nourish us and allow us, Lord, to continue to persevere. And, Lord, I pray for the person here today that has never got serious about following you that you would do such a work in their heart to say it's no longer about you, but it's about what my son has done on your behalf. Rest in that. 
Lord, I pray you would impart that message by the power of your Holy Spirit. We say this, Lord, so that we might give you all the glory, that we might present a gospel witness to the entire world, that, Lord, they would know that Jesus is worthy. He is worthy of our all, and that all glory should go to him. We pray this in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Amen.